You can grab a seat. As you do, grab your Bible. We are in John 17 this morning. I know that, uh, yeah, it's fun to see a lot of faces that we haven't seen. But grab a seat, grab a Bible, John 17. If you are freezing like I have been, just snuggle up to the person next to you, get warm. Uh, we're going to dive in together. And if you didn't grab communion elements, don't be bashful. Just look down right now, see if there's a little baggie of bread and juice. If not, go grab one. Oh, we're going to take communion when we're done. All right. John 17. Imagine with me for a minute. You are one of the 12 disciples. You've walked with Jesus for three years, just seen all of his marvelous ministry. You have seen things that your people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. You've seen miracles. You've seen teaching with authority. You've seen you know, storms calmed, people healed. All of the promises of the prophets, you've seen them begun to be fulfilled, and you're thinking, is this it? Is this the end? Is this the Messiah who's going to just usher in God's kingdom in eternity forever? You've seen it. And you're, you're in the room with him, and, and he's washed your feet. And you're in the room, and you've, you've, you've shared the Passover meal, but he's taken this, this bread and wine that's part of this meal, rich with symbolism. He says, this is about me. And you're in the room with him, and then he's told you that, that he's going away. And in fact, that you're all going to abandon him. And that Peter, your de facto leader, he's going to deny him. And then he says that your hearts shouldn't be troubled. He calls you to, to abide in him despite the coming hatred of the world. You are there in the room with him. And all these thoughts are spinning around your head. And then Jesus prays. He prays. What do you think he will pray for? On the night before he goes to the cross... When this Jesus cries out to God, what will he include? Who or what has his attention in that moment? With whom or what is he most concerned? We are in John 17, and Jesus is going to pray. And we get to listen in. It's, it's marvelous. Uh, Martin Luther wrote about this prayer in this chapter, the, the famous re reformer. He said this about this prayer. He said, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depth of his heart, both in, in reference to us and to his father, and he pours them all out, the depths of his heart. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Well, will you stand? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this hearty and warm prayer. Uh, I invite you, I know that we're used to studying the Word, and we're going to in a second, but if you would, just stick your finger in your Bible and just listen. Just hear the prayer of Jesus. And if you are able, I invite you to, to pray along with him, along with Jesus. But this is John 17. Jesus prays this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour 
has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. And church, this is the prayer of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please grab a seat. Well, we get to see Christ's heart, okay, Christ's heart, as we look at his prayer this morning. And here's what we're going to see. Jesus prays for three things. He prays for God's glory and our life. He prays for God's name and our belonging. And he prays for God's holiness, and our mission. Again, we get to see Christ's heart right here, and therefore we should pay attention. Okay, you can't say you love Jesus, and that, but you don't love the things that Jesus loves, and so we need to care about these things too. God's glory, and, and, and the church, and, and the world. And also, we can learn from what he prays. If there's ever times in life where we're faced with situations where we think, I don't even know what to pray. Maybe that's how you feel about war in Ukraine. You're like, I don't even know what to pray for this situation. Well, we can learn from Jesus. We can pray for these things and know we're on solid ground in doing so. But let's dive in, okay? God's glory and our life, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays. And what is the first thing he asks for? Glory. It's kind of surprising, Glory, it turns out, is Christ's central purpose and concern. And at first, 
blush, we might find that shocking or bizarre. Like, glory, really? That's what he cares most about? But if you've been with us throughout the weeks or months that we've been in John, this is, in fact, a central concern all along. Here is Jesus wrapping up his time with the disciples as he's turning his face towards the cross, his impending torture and death, and and he's pouring out his heart to the Father, and his first concern is God's glory. Whoa. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, I know that this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because You know, what we know best, what's most in front of us, what we see most with our eyes, is our sinful selves. And we look around and we think, well, if any of these people were supremely concerned with their own glory, that would be intolerable. Okay, we we can't have that. I, you know, I, I don't want to be around someone like that. But that's not true with God. Lest we think that God is an egomaniac or that his supreme concern with his glory is somehow to our detriment, Jesus continues, and we discover one of the sweetest truths of the universe. Look at what he says. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, and get this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The way the Son will glorify the Father, the way the Son is glorified by the Father, is by sharing his eternal life with us. It's beautiful. God's glory and our benefit, they are not at odds. They are intimately tied together. To care about God's glory is ultimately to serve our good. For God to be supremely concerned with his own glory, rather than being a selfish, you know, grotesque hoarding of attention, it's in fact a generous, life-giving act because of who he is. Now look at how Jesus defines this eternal life that he desires to give us. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God's glory and our joy are intimately tied together because life, eternal life, the life of heaven, well, it comes from knowing this God and seeing it. Now, eternal, when he says eternal life, it's not about quantity of life, that it's going to last forever, though it will. That word, it's about the quality of the life. It's the life of heaven. The life we get is not just for eternity, though it is, but it's from eternity. It's God's very life, which is why it comes from knowing him. See, this is not just head knowledge, but but knowing in an intimate sense. It's the knowing of abiding the knowing of relationship, the knowing of his life flowing through us. Thus, Jesus prays, Father, let your glory be on display. That's what he's praying for. Let your glory be on display that they may see it and come to know it and share in it and live. That's what he wants. Now, we might ask, okay, how or when? How how or when will Jesus glorify the Father by giving us this life? Well, it's in the text. It's at his hour. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now again, if you've been with us in John, you know the hour is a big deal. Because over and over again in John, we read, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. They couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. And he like you know, disappears into crowds and stuff like that. 
Um, but now the hour has come. If you have your Bible open, turn back just a few pages to chapter 12. Just turn back and look what Jesus says, chapter 12. Uh, verse 23. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then listen to what he says next about the hour. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he saying? We know he's anticipating the cross. His light or his death will produce life, a crop, a fruit uh, yielding life. Look at verse 27. He goes on. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' hour of glory. When he most clearly puts on display who God is, God's worth and value and, and, and glory, his holiness and justice, and yet his mercy and grace, the supreme demonstration of that, that hour is when he will be lifted up on a cross. Now, it's paradoxical and mysterious and, and beautiful. This tool of torture and humiliation, that's what it was, it was meant to humiliate, as well as, you know, be excruciatingly painful. Uh, it's meant to disgrace. That tool becomes an instrument of glory and of grace in the hands of Jesus. Now, we might ask, okay, wait, wait, I'm confused here, because in Sunday school growing up, I heard that Jesus died to save me from my sins, but is that true, or did Jesus die to glorify God? And the answer is yes. In saving us, he was glorifying God. Think with me for a second. All of our sin, all of our sin dishonors God. It diminishes or undervalues his glory. It says that, that he's not worth what the Bible says he's worth when we sin. We, we dishonor him. So when Jesus goes to the cross and suffers the penalty for our sins... He is showing us the value of God's glory in the price of sin. You see that? I mean, it's the same in, in our courts. If someone commits a crime against you and you go to court, you want the punishment to match the crime because it shows the value of the thing that's happened. If someone destroys your property, you want restitution to show the value of that thing that's been destroyed. And if a murder is committed, you want just punishment because that punishment shows the, the, the value, the glory of that thing that has been marred. And so true with Jesus. When he pays the penalty for our sins, he's showing us the, the, the worth, the value of God's glory, what it costs to cover over our dishonor and our sin. But more than that, even better, he also is restoring us back into a relationship with God where we can know and rejoice in, and relish God's glory. It's amazing. God gets to be both just and justifier, as Romans says, and receive all the more glory. And we get to know the glory of God's mercy, and grace, and justice, and goodness. We get to see it on display, and rejoice in that glory. His glory, and our joy, they're bound up in each other, and once we grasp it, how these things, they can't be separate. They go together. It helps us better understand the things that he prays for next. So, Father, glorify your name. Next. He prays for God's name and our belonging. Verses 6 to 16. Jesus moves from God's glory to those who bear God's name. Look at verse 6 and following. 
Jesus pivots from praying for glory to praying for the church, for his people. And Jesus says some, some pretty astounding things here. He says, I manifested your name to who? To the people whom you gave me. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Jesus says he's, he's praying for those who belong to him. They're mine, or to the Father. They're, they're yours. They belong to you. This is the family of God, the church. Now, it's not that he doesn't care about the world. We're going to see in a second that he does, very much so. But he's making an important point here that there's a distinction right now between those that are his and those that are in the world. He says, these are mine. These ones belong to me. Now that in itself is so countercultural. Because the world around us for at least 250 years has said the opposite. The world has, has told each of us that you are your own. That you are, are your own. That you are the captain of your faith, that you are the master of your soul, that, that you are in charge of you, and it's up to you, to, you know, as you belong to yourself, it's up to you to define and defend and present and, and perform in whatever ways you need to, to show the world your unique identity because you belong to you. And so we become convinced of this, and, and even our worship can become part of our, you know, autonomous self-expression. We can think, well, well it's, it's my faith. My faith and my beliefs and my habits, these are things that I choose and they're part of you know, my carefully crafted sense of identity that I project to the world. And so we can even do Christian things while thinking that we belong to ourselves. But Jesus says something so different. He says we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. He's saying that if you are following Christ, then you belong to him. Because you were chosen by the Father and given to the Son. And through your belief and your obedience, you now glorify them both. You belong to him. Why? Because he's placed his name on you. Kids in the room. Kids, I know that in Sunday school or in class... Maybe, let's, let's imagine for a second, you do a piece of art, okay? You're in class or you're in Sunday school and you make a craft, you do a piece of art. What does your teacher tell you as soon as you're done? Write your name on it. Make sure, don't forget, write your name on it. Why? Because it's yours. That's your piece of art. And it is a work of art, okay? And you need to take it home and show your parents and make them put it on the fridge because it's yours. You did that. It belongs to you. Or maybe kids, you go to, to soccer practice or basketball practice or dance class or whatever, and, and you notice at a little break, it's a water break, you go over and someone else is drinking from your water bottle. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second, stop that. Why? Because it's yours. That one belongs to you. How do you know? Because your name is written on it. You've put your name on it, and they should know better that that is yours. Your name is on it. When I was in high school, I... Uh, took a friend to a, a white elephant gift exchange party with my youth group. Okay? So it's it this church event, and, and he was not a believer yet, and, and he comes to this youth group event, and we're doing the white elephant thing, if you know what that is. You like exchange gifts, but you can steal the gifts partway through. Well, he gets a gift that he likes. It's this big stocking with one of those troll dolls, weird faces and hair sticking out of it, and he likes it, 
And he thinks, well, I want this to be mine. So he just goes and gets a Sharpie from the name tag table and writes his name on the big white part, you know, Chris, across the top, so that everyone knows this belongs to him and they can't steal it. And everyone's like, you're ruining the game. Like, you fool, you know. They're so mad at him. But it, it's, it's, his name is on it. It belongs to him. Jesus says that he manifested his name to his people, that they belong to God. They belong to him. And then what does he pray? He says, keep them in your name. The disciples were about to face intense persecution. Every single one of those guys in that room would die a martyr's death. And through it all, they were kept. They were held in his name because they belonged to him. Jesus is praying that God will hold that God will guard, that he will keep those that belong to him. Do you worry? Do, do you worry that you're too weak at times to do what God has called you to? Do you worry that, that, that you may not have endurance to make it to the end? Do you, do you wrestle at times with, with doubts and, and, or unbelief? Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you, and he's asking the Father to keep you in his name, to keep you close because you belong to him. Now we can ask, what does it mean to be kept in his name? Well, Jesus, he grounds his prayer by saying that he manifested, he showed the name, okay? And that the disciples, that they received his words, they came to know the truth and believe, Jesus revealed God's name. He showed God's character, who he is, what that name means. He made God known. And we can understand this because we know that, that names, they carry associations. They mean something. Okay, And so the, every name has, has meaning attached to it. So when you go to name something, whether it's a pet or, or you know, a doll or a stuffy or, or one of your children, when you go to name that thing, you know that, that names carry meaning. Okay? You want to put names on that you have good associations with, and you don't want to name them something that you have a bad association with. So when Karis and I named each of our children, we go through this process where it's like, well, what do you think about this name? And then one of us would say, no, I knew a guy, and he was the worst, and I'm not putting that name on my kid. You know, I know better than that. And then you have to go through this process and figure out, okay, and well, not that jerk, and not that jerk. Okay, that person's okay, you know, before you put a name on, on your kid. When Karis and I were, were pregnant with Elsie, our daughter, uh, we asked the boys, they were, you know, four-ish and two, uh, what they wanted to name her. And our sweet boy, Bjorn, he, uh, he thought of the thing that he loved best in the world, and he wanted to name his sister the thing that he loved best. And so he told us with just great earnestness that he wanted to name her Bratwurst, um, <laughs> because that was his most favorite thing in the world. And he was devastated, genuinely shocked when we didn't name her that, uh, because of how much he loved Bratwurst. Um, see, names carry associations. So on the one hand, we are kept by the Father's name, meaning we're kept by all those attributes which Scripture attaches to him, love and grace and holiness and justice and righteousness and mercy and faithfulness and omnipotence and omniscience, all these things that we know to be true about God. We're, we're kept by those things. But Jesus prays for more than that. He prays that we would be kept in the name, that we would be kept as those belonging to that name. Remember, eternal life is knowing God. So Jesus 
prays that we would be kept knowing, that he would keep us knowing him, that he would keep us beholding him, that he would keep us believing on him, that he would keep us meditating on and and keep us drawing strength and encouragement from all that God is for us. Jesus says, these disciples of mine, God, God, they're yours. So keep them, hold them, guard them. I showed them who you are. Now hold them in that knowledge. Keep them close. Now think about God's name that Jesus specifically manifested. Okay, God's name, I am. Jesus had a lot to say about I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. He manifested that name. And now he says, Father, keep them in that name. Keep them eating and feeding on me. Keep them seeing and walking by the light. Keep them following and and, and near to the shepherd. Keep them living in this new eternal life. Keep them abiding in me. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus, he, he frames our predicament you know, as, as we're framed by the hatred of the world on one side well, and, and the attack of the evil one on the other. Go back to the enemies of the body and life and we'll get it. See, the disciples, they're going to be buffeted from, from without and from within. There will be those in the world who hate them for God's word, but there will also be words whispered in their ears and in ours as the evil one attacks. See, when we're receiving the hatred from the world, the heat of the world, the evil of the world, we hear in our heads, God has left you. God God has rejected you. God's forgotten you. Who do you think you are? You think you belong to him? Not likely. Look at your sin. Some disciple you are. Believers, in Ukraine, right now, they're, they're seeing evil on, on display as war rages, and maybe they're getting attacked from the evil one, whispering in their head, God's forgotten you. Jesus prayed for them, that they would be kept. And he prays for you, that you would be kept. Ben sh- uh, sent Kevin and I a video before church this morning of, of, of believers in Ukraine singing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, in, in in their language, their mother tongue. And it's just beautiful. They're singing. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, but, but he must hold me fast. They're declaring both their faith in, but also their need for God to keep them in the name. If you want to see that video, ask Ben. He'll send it to you. Jesus knew we would face the accusations of the evil one. And he prayed that we would be kept in the name of God and would remember and believe, not who we are, but believe who he is. See, though we are faithless, he is faithful. Though our sins were an act of rebellion, he sought out and saved his enemies. Though we oft forget him He will never forget us because, as Isaiah says, our names are graven on his hands. 
Friends, not only did Jesus pray this back then, but he prays this right now in heaven. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that, that he ascended to God's right hand, that he's in God's presence right now, and he's praying for us right now. Do you doubt that he will be heard? The Son of the Father? Jesus prayed, and he is praying for you, that we would be kept in his name. Okay, he prays for God's glory, for God's name, lastly, for God's holiness, and with this we'll be done. In verse 11, Jesus addresses God as Holy Father. It's, it's a unique title. It's the only place in the entire Bible when God is called that, Holy Father. It's similar to the Lord's Prayer that we prayed when he says, Our Father, hallowed be your name. But again, it's the only place we get those two words right there as an address for God. It's the gospel. The transcendent, holy, perfect God in all his his perfection and justice is brought together with the warmth and the intimacy and the grace of a father. He's a holy father. Well, after praying that the holy father would look after his own, now he turns and prays that the, the holy father would make his own holy. Verse 14 Jesus says that his word has set them apart from the world. And then he prays that they would be further sanctified, further set apart by the truth of God's word. If we belong to God, we are kept in his name and live as those who belong to him. And and if we do that, we will be different. We will be set apart, noticeably other than the world. The truth of God's word will guide us into this as we are given a way of living that, that again, is often contrary to so many of the world's values. But, that said, we are not cloistered off in some, you know, monastery or or spiritual ghetto. No, we are sanctified, but then sent back into the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, that, that little verse on mission, it's embedded between these two verses on sanctification. We are called to be set apart and yet sent. Separate from the world for the sake of the world. See, we we can't speak to the world from inside it. We need to be separate. See, the world, the world doesn't need your conformity. The world doesn't need you to be just like them. The world doesn't need you to show them how Christians can be cool or enlightened or whatever word, you know, you're tempted to buy that would encourage your conformity. Yes, the world does need us to to, to show them the plausibility of Christianity, that it's good. But, But ultimately, it's your holiness that the world needs, according to Jesus. Why? Because the world doesn't need to see a mirror of themselves, they need to see Jesus. We need to be sanctified because we need to be made more like Jesus, that the world might see Jesus. Jesus prays to the Holy Father that we would be sanctified, made holy for the sake of our mission to the world. Now, if you're like me, you're asking, how can we possibly hold those two things together? Sanctified and sent. They seem a little contrary. How can we be different without being detached? How can we be set apart without being aloof? 
On the flip side, how can we be sent into the world without becoming like the world? How can we be in the world without becoming indistinguishable from it? I mean, we think about our earthly examples, and they're not great. You know, there's those that try to win friends and influence people, uh, and they look for points of connection, for sameness, for, for shared interests and views that they might connect. And they might win the relationship, but they don't move to any new ground because they gave up the ground getting close. On the flip side, we know those who are, who are set apart in their earthly endeavors, and rarely can they reach those around them. You know, they may be, be sanctified, quote-unquote, in their diet or in their activism or their cause. You know, they're the holy ones and whatever it is that they're about. But rarely do they win people over because they're not just sanctified, but sanctimonious. <laughs> they're holier than thou in their, you know, whatever. So how can we do both? How can we get close while remaining different? How can we be sanctified without being sanctimonious? How can we be holy without being holier than thou? Well, Jesus says we must be sanctified in the truth. It's only possible through knowing the Holy Father. It's only possible by seeing the glory of the cross. To be sanctified in truth does not mean to clean up your act. To be holy does not mean to get your life together, to dress up in external morality. All of those things, if you were to clean yourself up, They would give you reason to look down on the world and to stay relationally distant. To be sanctified in the truth means to see your sin, to see your unholiness, and to let God work his truth in your inner parts, as it says in Psalm 51, and then cleanse you from the inside out. To be sanctified in truth means a holiness that flows from grace, And therefore, a mission that is marked by humility. And this is only possible by seeing the glory of the cross. See, when I I look at the cross and I see what's on display there, I see the glory. I see my my sin. I see the the cost of my rebellion to pay for, for the way that I've dishonored such a worthy, glorious God. And I, I see that well, that I'm that bad. That's what it cost to redeem me. And when I see that, there's no room for pride. There's no room for looking down my nose at the world. But when I look, I also see in the cross the love of my Savior. That he gladly paid that debt. That I am that loved. That he would do that for me. And I can now have confidence to go to the world without needing the world's approval because I have all the love I need in Jesus. We go to a world not with an air of superiority, but knowing that we were the same, but for the grace of God. We go to a world knowing that our holiness comes from nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're sent into the world singing, for my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope 
and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our mission flows from God's holiness, our belonging from his name, and our life from his glory, manifested and shown most beautifully in the cross. Let me pray.